have the passage open before you. There's a sermon outline in the Connect cards, and as usual, the passage is printed on the back. Um, there are some uncomfortable truths in today's passage, so let me um, leave briefly with another prayer, if you don't mind. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. On my ride home on Friday night from work, I caught a snatch of conversation between two young guys in Carlton. Uh, well, one guy said, well, it depends what you mean by a partner. Uh, in one sense, I've only had one or two long term, but in another sense, over a hundred. His tone was casual. And it does raise the question, as I cycle past the sex shop and the uh, Johnson Street brothel, which comes up on my Wi-Fi as I cycle past, in a hyper-sexualized city like Melbourne, why should a Christian sex life look any different? Uh, to answer that question, we need to listen hard to the opening words of tonight's passage, which we got missed off on the uh, projector earlier. They're striking words to us today from God. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. I'd like you to um, remember those words as we look at this picture. This is from my favourite Facebook post this year. Um, this uh, is a key moment in the lives of Samuel's school friend Nathan and his dad, Tom, his new dad. You see, as a young boy, Nathan never had someone he could call dad. Perhaps the closest thing he had was the man who ran the school holiday sports club, Tom. But in the past few years, Tom has stepped into his life in a much bigger way. He chose to marry Nathan's mum. And he chose to become the dad that Nathan had never had. This is the day after two years of official paperwork that he is finally officially adopted. And he can tell the world that his dad is Nathan, that is, is Tom. And Nathan now knows that he is truly a dearly loved child. And he knows that it's because of what Tom chose to do. He doesn't now have to earn Tom's love. Tom already loves him unconditionally. And we need to keep that image in mind as we read through Ephesians 5. Verse 1 tells us that's us. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. You are God's children. That word therefore takes us back to the first half of the book of Ephesians. Uh, which tells us that the calling we have received is to be God's children. The second half of the book is full of lots of practical applications of that, uh, how to live that out. And read out of context, the second half of the book might easily be turned into a list of rules and regulations, a list of do's and don'ts. And there's a danger of thinking that if we make some good resolutions and try hard to keep those rules, it will somehow be good enough for God. Uh, the posh term for that is legalism trying hard in our own strength to overcome besetting sins is always doomed to failure. And it completely misunderstands how God deals with us. So in chapter 1, God told us that if we're Christians, he has chosen us. He's predestined us. He's, he's redeemed us, brought us back from slavery to sin. He's forgiven us and he's adopted us as his children. It's all God's initiative, not ours. It's not due to our trying hard. And now, loved by a dad like that, we're naturally going to want to imitate him. So you and I, too, are called to be imitators of our heavenly dad, to be imitators of God. 
Now, it's great fun after the service to watch kids imitating their dads. Uh, perhaps you can watch how Walt looks like Chris without the beard. <laughs> or the Teague's boys' passion for bald sports like their dad. My boys like to hop on the side of the bicycle on one pedal and wheel it along the road, just because that's what they've seen me do. And at their stage, they still just about look up to me. <laughs> and the way we imitate God brings him glory in our lives. We are God's children, and he's calling us today to live lives like him. Literally, this passage says that we're to walk like him. You were created for this. In verse 2, to walk this earth the way that Christ did, living a life of love. We're to live as Christ lived. We're to walk as Christ walked. In the Greek, that word walk appears three times in the passage. And as we follow in his footsteps as beloved children, we're going to look at each of those walks in turn. I'm going to spend most of the time on the first section of this, so don't worry, we will finish. So first, what does it look like to walk like Christ in the realm of sex and relationships? We're called to walk like God in the realm of sex and relationships with purity and thankfulness. There are four different words for love in the New Testament. The word here in verse 2 is agape. That means the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. The type of love that Jesus had for his father and for his followers. Pure, divine love. And we see it most clearly at the cross, where Jesus laid down his life for us. Agape love is totally other-centred. It's not about what I can get from a relationship. It's, it doesn't ask, what's in it for me? It couldn't be more different from some of the things that the world calls love. It isn't a feeling, it's not a desire, it's not self-centred, it's not driven by lust, it's not impulsive, it doesn't make its own happiness the goal. It doesn't say, well, if it's not working for me, I'm going to get out. No, agape love makes lasting commitments. So what does it mean to show agape love in the realm of sex and relationships? It means that in a sex-crazed society, we're to be distinct, to be pure, by keeping sex in marriage. Sex in our society is abused, it's stolen, it's cheapened, it's ruined. And the casualties are everywhere. Maybe you're one of them. The sex-obsessed society, though, that we know today wouldn't have surprised Paul. He was speaking from a very similar culture. But he's writing here to Christians, to people in the church like us. And he says that we're to be distinct from the world out there. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. So if we're asking how much impurity can we get away with in our lives or in our church, then the answer is very clear. Not even a hint. Now let me be very clear up front. God is not anti-sex. Not in the slightest. God created sex. It was his idea. He designed us as men and women with physical bodies, with the capacity for romance, with good sexual desires, the ability to express our romantic love through sex. And God thought it was so fantastic that he gave it as his wedding gift to couples when they marry. If we enjoy good sex, it's because God made it that way for us to delight in our husband or wife. And the Bible urges us to enjoy expressing our love for our spouse through regular, passionate sex. And good sex is meant to communicate a very specific message. 
a committed, exclusive love between a man and a wife. But to protect sex, to protect the meaning of sex, God has set very clear limits around it. Sex is only to be enjoyed within a lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. One man with one woman for life. Sexual immorality here, the word in Greek is pornea, means anything which steps outside those limits. So it covers a wide range of extramarital relations, from bestiality, incest, paedophilia, homosexual practice, promiscuity, adultery. These are all out of bounds for us as God's children. And the issue here isn't one of consent. They're wrong because they overstep that boundary that God has set in place. Now you might be asking me, Tim, well in a world which urges us to go with the flow and just follow our feelings, how could it possibly be good for God to draw boundaries, to deny us fulfilling our desires? Song of Songs says, love burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. You know, fire in the right place is a good thing. It warms us, it cooks the snags on the barbie, it fires our electricity grid. But it is a powerful thing. And here in Victoria, you don't need reminding, but it can wreak devastation, even death. There was it 20 to 60 fires blazing in New South Wales even today. We know the fire bans and the boundaries set by the authorities are there to protect us. In fact, they give us freedom to enjoy the amazing beauty in the national parks in Victoria because fire is kept in its right place. God isn't putting these boundaries around sex because he grudges us having fun, but to allow us to enjoy the freedom to live life in its fullness. So take, for instance, homosexual practice. And I understand that homosexual practices, uh, homosexual attraction is common. I've got friends with it. And I understand it's not something that people choose to experience. And I understand that it's hard in our culture to say that physically acting on those attractions is wrong. But according to God's word, it dangerously oversteps a boundary. And Christians are called to be shaped by scripture rather than the prevailing culture in our world around us. Well, Tim, you might say, I'm not having extramarital sex. What's this got to do with me? But I think this passage goes further than these outward sins. This is also about pornography, about the internet, the imagination, the jokes, the crude conversations and innuendos. It's about our thought life. We all know that there are parts of our lives which, in our more honest moments, make us feel ashamed. Our sinful nature doesn't go away when we step in the door of Darabin Prezi or when we pray a prayer of faith. So this isn't just about someone out there, it's about us. We need to hear what God has to say about sexual immorality. There's to be no impurity or covetousness or greed. It is about our inner self, our thought lives. In Matthew 5, didn't Jesus say that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart? If you're like me, even I'm sure that we can all think of areas in our thought lives which are far from pure. Thoughts we definitely wouldn't want others listening on. on. And no greed. Any sort of greed or covetousness is wrong in the Bible. Usually we think it's talking about wealth. 
And it's a craving after things that God has given, making them an idol. It's an idolatry. It's worshipping the gifts rather than the giver. But in this context, I think that covetousness is very specifically sexual in verse 3. It's the opposite of that agape love, isn't it? It's a greedy desire for self-gratification, for somebody else's body, somebody else's marital partner, maybe someone else's future marital partner. So we might be asking ourselves, well, how far can we let ourselves go in our thought lives before it crosses that boundary? How far is it okay for a Christian couple to go physically with each other before they're married? Or what sort of films and magazines and books can I read before it becomes wrong? But that is the wrong question, isn't it? Verse 3 says that there should be not even a hint. The biblical perspective is to ask not how far can I go, but how close can I stick to God's plan for sex? Any hint of sexual immorality is so out of place for God's children uh, that as one translation puts it, impurity or covetousness should not even be named among us. There should be a reticence even to speak about these things amongst God's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place. Such talk is really just sex without taking the clothes off. This proverb says that out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. If our tongues are out of place then it's because our hearts are out of place. So if we're trying hard to flee from the evil desires of youth, then smutty innuendo and lurid gossip are going to be quite out of place for us, aren't they? And I guess that goes for what we watch on TV or in the media, the films we choose, the comedy shows and the music we listen to. In our gospel community, we were talking the other day about how unhelpful some music can be. It's not just the lyrics. Sometimes even just the associations we have draws us back to the former way of life we once lived in. Verse 4 says these things are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. If we're not sure whether this film is good for us to watch or whether this romantic novel is really helpful for us, then a good question to ask is, can I thank God for this? At the back, I've um, brought some books tonight. They're on sale. We've got four of these by Tim Chester, specifically about pornography, and Joshua Harris's book, which has been renamed. Uh, This is written for guys and girls. Um, I've read it last week and it's highly recommended by me and lots of other people who've read it. If we run out, we'll buy more copies. It used to be called Not Even a Hint, so you can see where he's coming from. Uh, It's plain speaking and practical. And in its, Joshua writes, if God's spirit is not to be grieved, you should be able to honestly give thanks to God for the whole portrayal in in its totality. If you can't bow your head and sincerely thank God for a movie, or a symphony, or a newscast, or a novel, then for you that activity is wrong. Stop arguing with yourself and move on to something else. I found that quite challenging but helpful. Perhaps we think that sexual immorality isn't a big deal for us. Uh, Maybe we think we're doing quite well in this area. But sexual temptation is a very real danger for us all. Uh, That's why this passage comes with such strong warnings, doesn't it? You know, when I was a student, my first few years at university, there were two large, strong evangelical churches in the town. Half of you went to one, led by a chap called Roy. In fact, our Christian union used to meet in his church, and he was an excellent Bible teacher. The church thrived under his teaching for 20 years. Keen students 
had his books on their bookshelf published by IVP, and he was the big-name speaker at national conferences. No one saw what was coming. The year after I graduated, the church announced one Sunday that he had left his wife and his family and the church to pursue a same-sex relationship. His family were left distraught. His ministry was totally undermined. And the evangelical community in Britain was rocked to the core. And what shocked us most was not that a Christian guy can fall into sexual immorality, but that someone who seemed as solid as Roy could. If he wasn't beyond falling, then we realised that none of us were. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a real battleground, and the stakes are high. We need to be concerned about the invasion of impurity into our lives, because we're at risk of throwing away our inheritance. Verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now Paul isn't talking about our past there. He's writing to people like many of us who were once full of immorality. Chapter 2 told us that the Ephesians were once dead in their transgressions and sins in which they used to live. And again he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now the great news we've been singing about earlier and we'll be celebrating at the Lord's Supper tonight is that all of these things can be forgiven. And we can leave our regrets at the foot of the cross. Jesus gives us a totally fresh start. We can be pure again. But when we become God's children, things have to change completely. Nor is Paul talking about temporary lapses. But Paul is clear that those who unrepentantly and as a matter of course indulge in sexual immorality, impurity and greed are not going to heaven. And they won't get to enjoy God's new creation because they show by their lifestyle that they wouldn't enjoy God's kingdom anyway, because that kingdom isn't about one long orgy of crazed sexual excess, as some might picture it. No, heaven is about being with and being like Jesus. So why would we want to live in God's perfect new world if all we want to do now in this world is live as though God is not God? A sexually immoral person, Ephesians says, is an idolater. Covetousness in the sexual arena, like any other, shows that we worship a different God, and that God is an idol. All sexual immorality is idolatrous because sexual gratification takes the place of God in a person's life. Sex is a God substitute for many. I guess Paul's words might seem hard to you, but we are at risk of being deceived here. People will always play down talk of judgment. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Deception will abound. Roy is now teaching in a Bible college. People will tell us that God is not really angry about sin or concerned about how we express our sexuality. And if you're like me, you, you'll know that we all have a great built-in capacity for self-justification, for deception. Proverbs tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. So I wonder if you've ever heard your heart saying any of, any of the things like this. You know, there's the, the blind spot. You tell your conscience that the Bible isn't really clear on this issue. And commentators disagree on the meaning of verse 6 or the minimising tactic. And sex outside marriage isn't the unforgivable sin, is it? Or presumption. 
God will forgive me. He, he always does. Or self-pity. I, I'm so weak, I can't help it. And we're all sinners, aren't we? Or I know I did that, but I still go to church and I evangelise my friends and read the Bible. Uh, God's not really interested in what I do when the lights are off. Uh, friends, it's so easy to be deceived by these empty words. But these five verses in Ephesians are really clear, aren't they? Be sure of serious consequences if we step over that threshold and cross the line that God has set in place for our well-being and safety. So Tim, I hear you saying, uh, but what steps can I take to tackle lust in my life? There's a danger again in making that list of rules and regulations for us to keep. If you do try and do it in your own strength, you'll fail. So instead, a few general points and then a few practical applications and then we'll move on. Firstly, realise that you are at risk of deceiving yourself. Realise the consequences that your salvation is at stake. Remember what Christ has done for you at the cross and how inappropriate this sort of sin is for someone who is in Christ. (coughs) Repent. Confess your wrongdoing to God, but also perhaps to one or two other Christian friends who you can trust. I think for all of us, this is an area where it really helps to have some accountability partners around us, a group of trusted friends of the same sex whom you can pray with and who can ask challenging questions and who you know won't dodge the issues, who can challenge you when you slip and then accept that you really are forgiven. Because Ephesians 5 goes on to say, and we'll hear it next week, that these Christians who once indulged in every sort of immorality will one day be presented to Christ as a radiant church, like a bride, without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. Now for a few specifics. We struggle in different ways, whether it's lustful thoughts or gazing greedily at someone else's body or internet porn or promiscuity but we're called to be different. So the question to ask is, what will it involve for me to be pure in this area so that there's not even a hint? It may mean taking action and doing some very practical things. In his book, Joshua Harris encourages us to create a personalised action plan for fighting lust in our lives. Here are just four, four examples. Firstly, what we watch. It may mean that you just don't watch certain films. I used to enjoy James Bond films. I now find them quite hard to watch. For a lot of us, it will mean taking radical action over the internet. It might mean moving your computer to a public part of the house. That's a great thing to do as a family. Or maybe with the screen facing out through the window onto the street. It might involve arranging for a list of the websites we visit to be emailed to a friend. I have friends who've installed software like Covenant Eyes or NetNanny. Others, pastors even, who've disconnected their Wi-Fi so they can only access the computer in the main room of the house or another who's a pastor who's got rid of his iPhone and gone back to an old Nokia brick. Do you remember those? Secondly, it might mean that you just don't go to certain places where you know you're going to be tempted. If you're going out with someone, it might mean you just don't go round to their house when you know that their friends are out. At Naomi and I used to arrange to stay with friends when we were engaged but living in different cities. It was a bit inconvenient, but in a way it was actually a really practical witness to our friends who got involved in putting us up. Third, if you're sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse, then stop, repent, stop sleeping together. Ask yourself, is this relationship really bringing me close to Christ or is it ultimately taking me away from him? Is it time to get married or time to end the relationship? Fourthly, one thing it would definitely mean for all of us is thankfulness. 
The antidote to sexual impurity in verse 4 is thanksgiving. So husbands, do you thank God for your wife's body? Wives, do you thank God for your husband's body? Singles, do you thank God for his gift to you of singleness? It may be an unexpected gift. It may be an unwanted situation. But verse 20 says that we're called to give thanks always to God the Father for everything. Jesus was fully man, a sexual being, a single, but he honoured God perfectly with his sexuality. The world tells us if we're not having sex, we're missing out, we're not complete. Don't be deceived by the world's lies. Because of the cross, we're God's children, so we will walk differently in the realm of sex. I spent the bulk of our time on this first point. I'll be very brief, but I think it was such an important issue to cover. And I hope you'll talk about it more after the service is over with your friends. But we'll look much more briefly at the rest of the passage. This has been a very dark area to consider. But the second commandment is there in verse 8. Walk as children of light, exposing the darkness. Paul's asking, how can we relate to a world where these things are just considered normal? Where suggestive and impure language just isn't given a second thought? Where the average age for people to lose their virginity is 15 or 16? Where cohabiting is just the norm? How do we remain credible in that situation? Paul says, be a light in the darkness. Don't think that we can win people for Christ by living like other people. We might think that if we aren't more like our friends, they won't listen to us, but that's not right, is it? Uh, Particularly in the realm of of sexual sin. Verse 7 says, do not be partners with them. Live amongst the world, of course. We need to be out there, but don't partake in the same immorality that they join in that perhaps you want shared in. If our lives don't look any different from our friends, then they'll draw the conclusion that Christianity's no different, that it's irrelevant. Be what you are, says Paul. Light up the darkness, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as, walk as children of light. So our lifestyles are going to be those which are good and right and true. So we're not going to be concerned about pleasing other people. Are you a people pleaser? I definitely am, and I think it's the biggest handicap to me in sharing my faith. But as Christians, we are freed from the need to please people, to care how they rate us or value us. We're to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. We know very well what pleases us, but we need to discover what pleases God. And as we get to know God better, as we want to talk to him in daily life, um, through prayer and Bible reading and hard thought, we'll work out what pleases him in specific situations particularly in that balance between being in the world and being not being of the world. Paul gives us a starter in verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. And the darkness I've been talking about at the start of the service is so shameful that we're not even to name these sins. And it's certainly not appropriate for us to talk of lightly. Instead, our lifestyle should be so distinctive that they'll provoke questions and lead to those conversations where we do get to explain the gospel. Paul says it's like a light, verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes a light. That's why it's said, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When the Ephesian Christians were converted, God didn't change their surroundings, but he changed them. So imagine when it gets dark, you're looking out of your uh, house window onto the garden. 
God didn't turn on a floodlight in the darkness of the garden. He turned on a light inside the house, inside your life, that it might shine out and illuminate that garden. At work, I use lasers to find some very rare blood cells, and I label them some antibodies which fluoresce bright lights when they're hit with a laser beam. When my laser hits one of these cells, it literally becomes a source of life, a source of light that we can see. When the light that Jesus shines into your life uh, has its effect on you, you will become a source of light to those around you. In September, a severe storm took out the power grid in southern Australia, didn't it, and left 1.7 million people in darkness. If you've ever been in a power cut, you'll know how grateful you are for the most meagre source of light, some guttering candle or a half-dead bike light. We may be the only source of light in a dark situation. And in future years, people who've worked and lived alongside you may be very grateful for that light. Because of the cross, we're God's children, so we should walk differently in a dark world. Walk as children of the light. Let it shine. Lastly and briefly, verse 15 to 20 tells us to walk wisely, redeeming the time. Be very careful then how you live, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Mind your step, says Paul. Walk carefully. We're to walk wisely. Now, wisdom is a huge topic in the Bible, which really deserves a whole sermon series. This month, Naomi and I are reading through the book of Proverbs together, and there's a wealth of rich teachings in there about how to live in daily life in different situations, to live lives which go with the grain of life, which are in harmony with the universe that God's created, which are consistent with the character of God, who is just and righteous and discerning and holy. Walking wisely is about making moral choices, about having godly values, and again, it's about finding out what pleases the Lord. So often, for instance, with a decision we have to make, we should first ask, does the Bible say this is right or wrong? But sometimes there isn't, uh, it is clearly right, but we have to make a further decision. Is this wise? Is it a wise course of action to follow? And perhaps the best starting place to learn to be wise is to read some of the wisdom literature in the Bible. There's a lot about love and good sex in the Song of Songs. There's stuff about handling suffering in the book of Job and about daily life in Proverbs. But our motivation here in Ephesians for wise living is there in verse 16. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This is urgent talk. It's like the words of an army commander in the trenches to his troops on the eve of battle. Watch your step. Be wise. Make the most of this opportunity because you only get this one chance. Paul's not talking about time management here. It's about understanding the days in which we live. The important thing about this time is it's the time that people can move from one kingdom to the other. There will come a time when I won't be able to tell my friends about Jesus. There will come a time when I won't be able to honour God with this body as I live a distinctive life on earth. We only get this one opportunity. Are you going to make the most of it? So if time is limited, are we going to fritter away our surrendering our powers of judgment to alcohol? We all know that that's a surefire route to sexual immorality. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, or better, be filled by the Spirit. That means choosing each moment to continually be under the controlling influence of God's Holy Spirit. 
uh, to go his way, to allow the Spirit free reign in your life, to deal with whatever aspect of sin God's really pointing out to you at the minute. And to do this joyfully with thankfulness, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. This is what we're made for as God's children, to praise him and glorify him, to delight in him and to enjoy him forever. That's our reason for existing. And by extolling him in words and songs, when we praise God here at Darabin, we exalt him on earth, but we also encourage one another in the congregation. Look at that in verse 19. There is a horizontal aspect to our praise. If you ever stood behind me at church, you'll know that I often look around and catch your eye. But we should do that as we uh, engage with one another and share our joy. It encourages us to live thankful lives as we fight battles against greed and lust in a lost world of darkness. If, if you come to church wanting just a quiet bit of communion with you and God, then you'd be better off in a, in a Hindu temple or a, a Buddhist monastery. When Christians meet, they meet. So let's be a joyful people at Darabin. And when we're out in the city, let's be a singing people because we have a saviour who is worth singing about because we have so much to be thankful for. Because Jesus' death means we're God's children, so we will walk wisely. So let me end of these words from Ephesians. I've already read. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are sinners uh, and we are conscious facing this passage of our failings before you. But we thank you that you took the initiative, that whilst we were dead in our sins, you showered us with your grace. You made us alive with Christ. You forgave us. You adopted us as dearly loved children. And Lord, please help us to walk in your footsteps to be pure, to, to make progress in the battle against lust and greed. Uh, please make us lights in this dark world. Help us to make the most of this life, to submit joyfully to your Spirit's control and to have lives overflowing with thankfulness and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.